0: Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, my off-the-cuff podcast. Today I have a couple of fantastic guests, and we're going to talk about religion and politics. You can think about this as the God Pod, uh, if you will. And I am delighted to be joined by uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, of Maryland. Jamie is the co-chair of a new congressional caucus that uh, we founded a few weeks back. It's called the Congressional Free Thought Caucus. And uh, we're also joined by Andrew Seidel, who is an attorney for an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Uh, His legal team works to make sure the government obeys the First Amendment and uh, protects what Jefferson referred to as the wall of separation between state and church. Uh, That's a lot about uh, that. That is also the goal of our new congressional caucus, to defend the secular character of our government. So I want to welcome both of my guests uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on. And i just like to say what a pleasure and honor it is to talk to two congressmen who I genuinely admire. So thank you for having me on.
0: Well, thank you very much. So let's get started with a, kind of an open-ended question. I I want to ask each of you if you feel like there is too much religion in politics today. And I asked that question in the context uh, of a president who uh, rather incredibly seems to embrace have embraced religion in interesting ways. Uh, members of his cabinet, like uh, Scott Pruitt, uh, the swampiest of swamp creatures right now, but uh, frequently cites the Bible to justify uh, his pro-polluter agenda. Uh, and any number of other examples. Uh, we talked about some of these things when we rolled out the Congressional Freethought Caucus, but... I want to ask each of you your thoughts about whether there's too much religion in politics today.
1: Well, I, I certainly do think there is too much religion in politics. Uh, you know, James Madison wrote a great letter where he explained that both religion and politics it will exist in greater purity the less they're mixed together. Uh, so it's not it's not just beneficial for our government. To be separate from religion, but it's also beneficial for religion to be separate from our government. And I think that is an important point that is has been lost a lot lately. Um, you know, it, and one of the reasons the founders chose to keep state and church separate was because injecting that religion into politics is so divisive. Uh, and I think we are certainly seeing a lot more divisiveness these days as a result.
2: So the the way i think about it jared is that the constitution compels the separation of church and state but that's different from religion and politics church and state are uh official juridical entities that have to remain separate under the first amendment and under the establishment clause now religion and politics exist both in civil society and mm-hmm. they mix now and have always mixed freely from the very beginning of the republic. And under the First Amendment, because of the freedom of speech, anybody can raise any issue they want in politics, whether it's religious, moral, philosophical, educational, you name it. So I think that the the question... I should
0: have said government instead of politics.
2: Well, and and we should go to that question, but let's stick for one second Mm -hmm. with religion and politics. I think that... um, I don't know that they're any more mixed than they ever were. But I think what's happening is that the right-wing religious surrender to Donald Trump and everything he stands for is exposing a lot of religious groups and churches in America as being far more interested in power and in authoritarianism than they are interested in any vision of moral virtue. Um, I mean, Donald Trump obviously... Uh, is nobody's ethical paragon. He's somebody who's been charged by at least a dozen women with sexual assault and harassment and so on. Um, He's been sued literally hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times, for breaching his contracts and not paying contractors, painters, plumbers, accountants, you name it. Um, Lawyers. Yeah, I mean, but but the, the religious groups don't seem to care about any of it. Um, simply because they're willing to go along for the ride because he's appointing right-wing authoritarian justices yeah. like Neil Gorsuch as they blockade uh, uh, my constituent um, from even getting a, a hearing for the Supreme Court. So um, I think that, that that a lot of religions are discrediting themselves today and um, You know, that that's all part of the market of speech that we've got. And uh, I hope that uh, Donald Trump and his political tendencies discrediting itself, too. So uh, I don't know that there's too much religion in politics. I think that the that the natural allies have all found each other now.
0: And the way what I'm hearing you say is the way religions are engaging in some of their politics these days is... uh is questionable.
2: It's self-revealing in any event, and I think it's self-debunking in mm-hmm. a lot of cases.
0: But your, your point about uh, we should distinguish between politics and government is a very important one. And so, Andrew, let me ask you, this is, this is what you do for a living mm-hmm. every single day. What are some of the ways in which religion has been brought into the public square and uh, people have attempted to impose it on others through our government that trouble you the most these days?
1: Well, I think people don't realize how pervasive a problem it is these days. You know, I mean, this is, at the Freedom from Religion Foundation, this is what we do. We have nine attorneys on staff who do this full time. And last year, we received almost 5,000 complaints about state church violations, and more than half of those were about issues that were going on in the public schools. You know, teachers uh, telling kids they have to pray before they head down to lunch, uh, teachers telling kids that they have to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, broadcasting prayers over the loudspeakers at football games. And all of these are issues that have the Supreme Court has decided a long time ago, but we are still seeing the rights of conscience of students and other citizens being violated. Um, so the law is there, and there's a body of case law that exists to protect citizens, but government officials are often overstepping the boundaries. And I think people don't realize just how big a problem it is. I mean, I have a job simply because we get so many of these complaints. And again, you know, half of them being in public schools, I think, is, is
0: kind of shocking. Jamie, any thoughts about that? Yeah.
2: um, So I think one problem is the one that Andrew just identified, which is just the ancient traditional problem of people trying to legislate religion, theology, and uh, kind of sectarian compulsion through government. And the schools are obviously a principal channel of that. All of this has been decided by the Supreme Court as long ago as 1962 in Engel versus Vitale, where the Supreme Court said it's no part of the official business of public schools or government to be uh, legislating prayers and enforcing prayers in the public schools. Um, our friends on the other side of the aisle said that this was the downfall of America when the Supreme Court banned prayer in the public schools, although I like to say prayer was not banned in the public schools. As long as there are pop math quizzes, there will be prayer in the public schools. <laughs> Anybody can pray whenever he or she wants. All that the Supreme Court said is that the school system itself cannot dictate to young people what the prayer is going to be. But so we've got that not just in schools, but in the military, in Congress. As you know, Jared, uh, we've got the whole question of the chaplain, which uh, came um, surging into public view recently when yeah. uh, the chaplain was sacked because uh, the GOP didn't like the prayer that he gave before we voted on uh, the tax policy, which is a very vivid demonstration of precisely why we shouldn't have chaplains in public institutions, because it's a violation not just of the Establishment Clause, but of free exercise, because then the government ends up censoring the the prayers that people give and uh, essentially going back and trying to edit their uh, their scripture. So... um, I think that, um, that that's the traditional problem. There's a new problem now, and it is um, exemplified by the masterpiece Bake Shop case, which the Supreme Court just handed down, which is you've got a whole um, a putative civil rights movement uh, masquerading as a religious freedom movement, when all of it is just about the right to discriminate. An anti-civil
0: rights movement. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: mean, they claim to be, you know, defending their civil rights. They're actually trying to violate other people's civil rights. This was decided back in the 1960s um, in uh, the Heart of Atlanta Motel case and the Ollie's Barbecue case, where the Supreme Court rejected religious arguments that people have a right to discriminate, either because of what their political preferences are or their religious preferences. And, of course, you know, people who own hotels, motels, lunch counters would say, hey, you know, it's against my religion to integrate, to have race mixing. And the Supreme Court said— We've we've resolved that. We've resolved it because— you're running a place of public accommodation. You're running a hotel, a motel, restaurant in the stream of interstate commerce and public commerce. You gotta serve all yeah. comers. And it's you don't a have weird to do decision. it if you don't
0: want to. I, I yeah. wanna, let, let's, so we've got two things that you've teed up. There, yeah. there's the new uh, the bakery uh, decision. I wanna ask Andrew about that one as well. And then the issue of Father Pat and, and the House chaplain. So um, I I should have also mentioned in the introduction, but everybody's already figured it out by now, that Jamie is a constitutional lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jared. (laughs) Uh, Andrew, let's hear your thoughts about this new Supreme Court decision, because it walks an interesting line between uh, this so-called freedom of religion uh, and our civil rights laws.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think First, I'll say I think the decision could have been a lot worse, and I want to build a little bit on what Congressman Raskin said there, because over the last decade, you know, groups like FFRF, we have been fighting against a deliberate campaign to redefine religious freedom. And the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is a clear example of that. Uh, so, you know, under the U.S. Constitution, the freedom of thought is protected, absolutely. You can believe whatever you like without government interference. But the right to act on those beliefs, even if they are religious beliefs, can be limited. And I really like the way that Thomas Jefferson said it. He said that the legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Now, if your religion mandates picking pockets or breaking legs, then it comes under the purview of our secular law and no belief no matter how fervent should change that basically there is no religious right to infringe the rights of others now there were, kind of, there were two sort of major arguments that the bakery made in the case, um, that there is a free speech right not to make this wedding cake, and that it also has a free exercise of religion right not to make the cake. Uh, now, at FFRF, we were more focused on, and we actually focused our entire amicus brief on that second issue, uh, which is that attempt to redefine religious freedom as a license to discriminate. Now, thankfully, this time around, the court kind of heeded that warning, and it did not redefine religious liberty. And it also didn't bite on the free speech case. And what it instead did was sort of picked this odd middle road that was barely briefed. It was it was almost mm-hmm. an afterthought in all the briefing. Um, I went back and I counted 11 paragraphs and over 350 pages of briefing where the, the parties said, well, there was a little bit of hostility from the commission towards yeah. – the baker's religious beliefs. And that was how the Supreme Court decided this case. Um, but you know, wasn't, the, wasn't the
0: implication of that, that if the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado had simply not made a few of these statements that seemed to impugn uh, the plaintiff's religion, that they would have been just fine uh, applying that civil rights law?
1: Yes, I think th- I think that's fair. You know, I, I, I think it was the the couple's attorney actually said basically the Supreme Court gave the baker here, a get out of jail free card. And I think that's kind of a good way to conceptualize what happened. Um, I mean, there there were at least a couple of Supreme Court justices who would Uh, have redefined religious freedom but by and large they said Mm -hmm. nope it's perfectly acceptable for us to protect lgbtq people under civil rights laws those laws are valid um it just happens to be that in this case there was hostility towards the baker so we're going to kind of we're going to kind of punt on the the uh, big issues in the case
2: jamie is that a good decision Uh, well no it's an utterly fraudulent stupid decision (laughs) um I, Andrew's description of it is excellent because um, I think everybody recognizes that um, the case is actually a very simple one, and especially if you believe in what Justice Scalia wrote back in Employment Division v. Smith, that was the case which said that you don't have a constitutional right to smoke peyote, even if it's part of your religion, mm-hmm. if there's a neutral, universally applicable secular law against peyote use. And similarly, you don't have a right to smoke marijuana if you're Rastafarian, Uh, Because the purpose of that law is not to interfere with your religious uh, practice, but it's a neutral, universally applicable law, whether it's a good law or a bad law. That's what it is. And of course, that's got to be the case, because in America, anybody can create any religion they want with whatever beliefs they want, and you could very quickly create the church of, I don't want to pay taxes— and suddenly that's your theology, and then you'd be able to get out of taxes. And so it was Scalia and the conservatives who were the ones most emphatic about saying, no, the free exercise clause does not give you an escape hatch from any law that you don't want to participate in. So this was an easy case. But instead, because they had to give another win to the religious right, they said, well, in this extremely narrow set of circumstances that'll never happen again, they hurt somebody's feelings in the course of the administrative process. And by the way, the statements that they quoted, which were supposed to have been so offensive to other people's delicate religious sensibilities, were perfectly correct. The one that I saw most cited in the decision was the perfectly accurate statement that religion itself has been repeatedly invoked in history for things like slavery or the Holocaust or the Inquisition yeah. or other forms of religious discrimination. That's just a statement a fact. of fact. Yeah. Uh, it is what it is, And they're saying, therefore, this shows malice and um, ill will towards religion. You hurt their feelings in the process. So we're going to throw the whole thing out. It's just a ludicrous decision. But again, it shows um, how so many parts of the government are now tying themselves up into absolute knots just mm-hmm. to prove how pro-religion they are, um, as opposed to just defending the Constitution and saying, we've got a separation of church and state.
0: Right. Well, and, and the Supreme Court's done this before. The Hobby Lobby decision, I think, is also a, a dreadful decision where, uh, in the name of exercising religion, a, a company is allowed to to get a, a free pass from the health care law. Uh,
2: right. And, and this is the whole push, which is to say that you know my right to exercise my religious freedom gives me the power as a corporation or as a business to discriminate against other people yeah. that I don't like. And that really does fly directly in the face of all the civil rights laws that we fought for and the Supreme Court validated since the 1960s, which is if you enter the stream of public commerce, you're running a hotel, a motel, a restaurant, a business, you've got to be open to all comers. You don't have the right to discriminate whatever your theology or you know, ideological system is.
0: All right. So we're beating and, up on the Supreme Court. Let's bring it back to Congress. Uh, Jamie, you, you flagged the issue of the House chaplain and Father Pat, which uh, became kind of a national news story a month or so ago when out of the blue, for the first time in the history of Congress, uh, Speaker Ryan fired the House chaplain. And he did it because some of his members were upset that what they viewed as as a politicizing prayer, you and I would hear that prayer and think there was not much controversial about it. He, he prayed for fairness uh, on the day that we were debating the Republican tax bill. Uh, But for the first time in history, the House chaplain was fired, uh, and then under enormous pressure, um, Speaker Ryan had to kind of walk that back. Uh, This raises several issues, and and Andrew, let me just start with you, because I think you have actually litigated the issue of whether there can constitutionally be a House chaplain. That's sort of the the foundational question. Um, Supreme Court, I believe, has said it's okay for the House to choose a chaplain as one of its constitutional officers. Uh, but, but tell us, uh, what is the state of, of the law on that question?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, James Madison, I think, said it best, and he said that uh, an establishment of a chaplaincy in Congress is a palpable violation of the Constitution and of equal rights. Um, the Supreme Court disagreed with the father of the Constitution and the father of the Bill of Rights in 1983, and they upheld uh, chaplains at a state legislature in a case called Marsh v. Chambers. Uh, that is isn't, isn't the be-all, end-all, but it's, gonna, it's very difficult to challenge the constitutionality of a chaplain now. Um, Congress does spend something like $800,000 a year on the two chaplains and their assistants, uh, and those chaplains only have one enumerated job, which is to say a prayer each day the House or Senate is in session. Um, So, you know, it's kind of at least it's hard to find a clear case of wasteful spending, at least in my mind. um, But that doesn't necessarily change the constitutionality of it. Uh, One thing that we at FFRF have seen, though, however, not necessarily about the constitutionality of the chaplaincy itself, uh, but about what the chaplain does uh, is we've seen the chaplain discriminate against FFRF's co-president, Dan Barker, who asked to give a secular invocation before the House uh, session one day, and Representative Pocan sponsored that request, uh, and the chaplain said, no, you're an atheist, you can't do that. Uh, and that's discrimination under another Supreme Court precedent, uh, the town of Greece versus Galloway. So we've actually sued the House chaplain over that issue, and uh, you gentlemen were kind enough to submit an amicus brief in that case recently.
0: Yes, we did. So that that's going to be an interesting uh, precedent when, when that's uh, decided. It is, and there
1: actually we we are litigating a couple other cases on identical issues where uh, local government bodies, for instance Brevard county florida uh, have re- have refused to allow non believers to come in and say a secular invocation, and so far um, the secular movement has been very successful in litigating those cases. Yeah. Uh, so we we hope to see the appeals court this, overturn. This
0: uh, seems like court. a straight up violation of the Establishment Clause. But what do you think, uh, Congressman Raskin? I was in the Maryland Senate for a decade,
2: and we had um, not an official paid chaplain, which is just ridiculous. Okay, but we we did have uh, invocations, um, but it was open to all comers, and any senator could sponsor any member of the ministry that they wanted, including people who Mm -hmm. are uh, secular, or including, you know, a a professor, a poet, whomever you might want to solemnize the proceedings. To me, that makes it a really decent uh, and uh, time-honored American tradition. And I'm totally fine with that. But the moment you say that we're going to appoint one religious personage, to be a paid government official. um, And then that person is going to be able to determine whether or not someone is sufficiently religious or not to participate. It renders the whole thing automatically unconstitutional as a violation of the Establishment Clause. It really is the establishment of religion over non-religion, which the Supreme Court has said you can't do. You've got to treat all points of view equally, which is why the way maryland does it and i think most states do it is the constitutionally mandatory way of thinking about it and i think it's cool to um solemnize our proceedings have an invocation have a you know a benediction whatever it might be mm-hmm. but it's got to be open to everybody because we don't have one religion here we don't have an established church and we've got lots of different traditions so why don't we why don't we just do that so i i'm very hopeful that the courts come to their senses Um, In this case, and when the public finds out that hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent to pay religious officials, uh, it's going to be a scandal as it is. So at the very least, if you're going to take taxpayer money from every taxpayer in the country, regardless of whether they belong to this religion or that religion or no religion at all, um, you've got to allow representatives from all points of view up there and to participate and represent all the different streams in our philosophical discourse.
0: That's how California did it too. When I was in the state assembly, we would have an invocation uh, before every legislative session, but we had it from uh, rabbis and Hindus and uh, Buddhists and, and everybody. It, it really ran the full range of religious practice. So uh, that would be okay with you if we did something like
2: that. Yeah, I think it's got to be open to everybody, including, mm-hmm. I'm forgetting Andrew's colleague's name, but the Barker. The Barker, the Barker, secular view, yeah. Yeah, who to the secularists and other people. Um, obviously, you can make sure that the person's not going to get up there and start making fun of Congress, although that wouldn't mm-hmm. be so bad, I suppose. But, um, you know, you can make sure that the person's going to take their responsibilities seriously, Um but that that's not a religious test. And of course, the Supreme Court forbids religious tests for public office, just like it forbids the establishment of religion. Look, our founders took this stuff real seriously. I mean, they they were breaking from centuries of religious wars between Catholics and Protestants from a history of Inquisition and witchcraft trials and crusades. And they knew how that kind of irrationality and superstition can get out of hand. And Jefferson, Uh, above all, wanted a government that was founded on secular reason, where people could come together and reason together. That doesn't mean that you can't invoke moral principles drawn from different faith traditions. That's part of the First Amendment and freedom of speech. People can draw on any religious, moral, ethical, philosophical tradition that they want. But it's very different when Congress says, we're gonna employ someone from a particular ecclesiastical denomination than exclude people who don't fit that person's point of view.
0: Yeah. One of the most frequent things that we hear because we raise these questions Um, is that, oh, you must be hostile. You must have malice towards religion. You must be anti-religion. I don't feel that way. In fact, on on the the House chaplain issue, I I think Father Pat Conroy is a great guy, and I actually defended him against what Speaker Ryan tried to do uh, to him. If you're going to have a House chaplain, the Supreme Court has basically said you're going to. Um, He's a good one. I like him. And uh, and yet we frequently uh, those of us that have founded the Free Thought Caucus get accused of uh, hating religion, being hostile. What is your reaction to that, Jamie? And, and well, I'm going to do the same, Andrew.
2: I mean, first of all, I agree with you about Father Pat. Um, he, he was a great guy who was targeted for his political beliefs, which added a free speech animus to the religious animus that uh, he was experiencing. And I'm glad we were able to turn that around. And it's actually kind of an interesting story because he wasn't technically fired. He was forced to resign. He was elected to his office. We elected him. And so I'm not even sure if he was properly reinstated. We really needed to reelect him again. But in any event, um, you know... Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams and James Madison, they were all accused of being anti-religious, too, because they wanted to separate church and state. And one of the greatest documents you'll ever read in this field is uh, Madison's uh, remonstrance against religious taxation in Virginia, where he basically lays out all of the arguments against interposing the church in the business of state and vice versa. Um, And he was vilified For having done it. But what he said, and I think what all of the Enlightenment founders said, was that this is going to be much better for religion because now the state is not going to be trying to dictate to you the content of your theology. And also you're going to have a free market in religious competition. Let the churches rise and fall as they may. You can come along and you can create you know, Christian science or the Church of Scientology or Hare Krishna's or whatever you want. And it's going to be the market that's going to decide as opposed to the government Hmm. appointing which church is going to be in control. And so just like we have a market in politicians and political views and we have a market in economics, we could have a market in religion and the government's not going to pick winners and losers.
0: Andrew, you must get this a lot because you bring some provocative litigation. Uh, What do you say to those who accuse you of hating religion or disrespecting people of faith?
1: Well, I, I love what Representative Raskin said there, and I would echo that reading Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance against religious assessments is, is something that every American really ought to do. I mean, that w- he was arguing against a three-penny tax that would have gone to support uh, Christian preachers, and even that was too much for him. And it's, it really is a, a, a seminal argument and wonderful for people to read. And I mean, to me, I think the most important thing for, for everyone to understand is that The separation of state and church is important to every citizen, no matter what your belief. There is no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. I mean, this is one of the reasons that religious minorities tend to favor a tall, strong wall of separation between state and church. And as Representative Raskin said, it's one of the reasons the founders chose to build that wall in the first place. There is no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. Uh, And to me, that is just one of the, the central features of what I do for a living and what we do at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Maybe we need to do a better job of explaining that to everybody, but a a strong secular government guarantees the freedom of religion for all.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to add to Andrew's excellent analysis there, you know, the Puritans who first came over Uh, were fleeing religious oppression in England, okay? And so that makes them objects of sympathy. But of course, when they got to Massachusetts, the first thing they wanted to do was to establish their own theocratic tyranny. And then they went after the Quakers and the Baptists and others who were driven out of Massachusetts. And they went to Rhode Island. And basically, everybody got to set up their own little church. But the founders of the country said that there should be no establishment of religion. And that's been a hard-won principle. um, So we can actually have freedom... Of all of the sects. And when Jefferson wrote his letter to the Danbury Baptists, he was saying to them, We're building a wall of separation for the protection of people to believe as they see fit. And what Madison said in the remonstrance was, Your religious views and your spiritual journey is between you and God and the And the government can 't get involved and start pushing you in this direction or that direction
0: so great great conversation about the importance of of maintaining a secular government. one of the other things that our free free thought caucus um, aspires to do it 's in our mission statement is to support policy based on facts and science. so i want to bring it back to that. Uh, you could pick any number of issues these days where you see policy that 's not driven by fact and science in some cases it is driven by religion. Uh, I'm thinking of gun violence in particular, where we are told after every mass shooting that uh, all we can do is offer thoughts and prayers. But uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the the challenge we face today in trying to maintain a fact-based, science-based focus on public policy?
2: Well, I mean, climate change is the dominant context through which we've got to view all public policy problems today, because we're in a civilizational emergency, with climate change, and yet we have seemingly an entire political party ideologically or even theologically committed to the idea that The climate is not changing, and there's no issue. I'll tell you a story, Jared. I had a conversation with a colleague of mine uh, where I said, look, we can disagree about reproductive freedom, tax policy, whatever, but you guys got to come around on the question of um, climate change because it's a dagger pointed at the Mm -hmm. throat of humanity. And he said, well, Jamie, you got your your scientists and we got our scientists. And I'm like, that's not how science works, you know? (laughs) Uh, It's not rival partisan teams. And I took him to you know, the different websites to show him that basically all the professional scientists are saying the same thing. And he says, well, I'll tell you this about professionals. Professionals built the Titanic. Amateurs built Noah's Ark. And this was supposed to be the definitive proof that uh, we don't have a climate change. And I said, well, do you want an amateur that uh, is flying, uh, you know, your airplane home this weekend? Or you want an amateur performing heart surgery on someone yeah. in your family? You're just saying you want two members of our species to survive when it's all over. But, uh, you know, I think that the the. Scientific denialism around climate change is the biggest scandal of our time. But it's you know not just in that field; it pervades outwards. I mean, they're doing the same thing about water pollution and air pollution and auto emission standards, and you name it. There's a full-blown war on science taking place, and it was an inextricable part of the Enlightenment project that Jefferson and Madison were pushing that government would be based on empirical reality and facts and science. And, and we, we shouldn't get together and debate God and whose Bible was right and whose Bible was wrong. We should get together and talk about how to actually make life concretely better for people. But in order to do that, you need to believe in empirical reality and science.
0: Andrew? Andrew?
1: I mean, I think those were all wonderful points. And I I do think that trying to divorce these issues from religion is hard, too. There is actually there's a correlation between religiosity and climate denial. You know, even when you're looking at other factors such as political party, race, ethnicity, the strongest predictor about climate change, according to Pew Research, was religious affiliation. If you were unaffiliated, you were more likely to believe that the earth was warming due to human activity. White evangelical Protestants stood out as the least likely to have that view. And, you know, I went to, when I went to law school, I actually, I I focused on environmental law. I won an award for environmental law. I went on to get in a master's of law in LLM in international environmental law. I was a, a, a fellow at Denver for that. Uh, and when I Pivoted into defending the separation of state and church. One of the reasons I did that was because a I look at that as almost a silver bullet for for so many of the issues that we are facing today. You know, a robust separation of religion and government has ripple effects across so many policy areas, from foreign policy to the social safety net to tax policy to particularly environmental law and climate change. Um, but backing out more generally to talk more broadly about kind of kind of science-based legislation, I think we really need to a public education system that equips young Americans to be more discerning and more scientifically literate than their parents. You know, we have to create a society where... Being a climate change denier is political suicide, and I mean, of course, that takes a lot of time. And when we have this administration and this Secretary of Education, uh, who are trying to tear down public schools in the name of God, you know, it's it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think we need to do whatever we can uh, in that regard. And well, I know I know
0: I'm we're going to lose uh, we're we're going to lose Congressman Raskin in a minute uh, because of the schedule, but. Uh, I would like to ask him one last question here, and that is we've formed this new congressional caucus. Uh, What are your thoughts on why we need a free thought caucus in Congress, and what should we tackle uh, as upcoming issues to work on together?
2: Um, Well, Jared, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And this has been a delightful conversation. Can I just add one thing to what Andrew just said? Which is, in fairness, there are lots of uh, religious groups that are working hard on climate change and that take it seriously. And so, you know, know, there's diversity of views across the spectrum. But I think the ones that are fighting hard uh, to address climate change are ones that accept what the scientists tell us and then reason from there in an ethical and moral way to say we need to act. Thank you for pointing that out. I mean, yeah. no,
0: no better example than Pope Francis, who has been fantastic on, on science and climate yes. change and environmental responsibility. His
2: encyclical on it is a remarkable statement. I mean, it's as good as something you'd find from yeah. Bill McKibben. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and, you know, this is a point that, uh, the, you know, I think is worth a little analysis. You know, people will often say to me, well, you don't you know, you don't like Jerry Falwell or, you know, their program to uh, allow businesses not to serve gay people if they don't want to. But you had no problem with Martin Luther King being involved in politics. And I said, okay, let's be analytically clear about this. Dr. King was not pushing a theological program through government. He was not saying let's make everybody pray the same way Mm -hmm. or let's give people the right to discriminate against particular religions. He was saying let's have universally applicable secular laws that protect everybody's civil rights. And the way that I arrive at that position is through my moral faith history and tradition and belief system as he's got every right to do and that's fantastic. And I think that's been the most effective intervention of religious people in our history is when they're able to translate their moral views in a to a secular language that applies to everybody but so you but you asked me the question Jared like what is it we need to do obviously there's a lot we need to do beginning with resurrecting the basic constitutional and ethical commitments of the founders of the United States and make clear that a lot of the stuff that we debate a lot of things that come up like the bake shop case like the chaplain actually have a history and the founders have something to teach us about how to think about these issues. But we act as if, you know, we're reinventing the constitutional wheel every time one of
0: these things comes up. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, how meaningful is it to uh, advocates like you uh, outside of Congress that we have now formed this first ever congressional free thought caucus? And what are your thoughts on uh, uh, the agenda we should undertake?
1: I mean, it's actually a pretty huge deal for us. FFRF has 33,000 members, and when we set out, sent out the press release to them about the Free Thought Caucus, we got, we got an enormous response. People were really excited. Um, you know, The nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, are, are far and away the most underrepresented demographic at all levels of the U.S. government. And I can tell you that, as a group, we have felt that underrepresentation. And now I think the nuns are beginning to feel like they have a voice. Um, and I hope the Free Thought Caucus will, you know, encourage other legislators to stand up for and join this underrepresented yet growing group. Um, and it is it is growing. So I think this is very important from a demographic standpoint, uh, one, and from a uh, protecting the constitutional standpoint as a second thought. You know, there are 23% of Americans who identify as non-religious. That's an eight-point jump from 2007 and a 15-point jump from 1990. And about 35% of millennials are non-religious. And those numbers are from 2015, so they're almost certainly higher today. Uh, and now those folks have a voice in Congress. And I think that could encourage more young, secular people to become voters, which would be a, a huge bonus. Uh, but I'm, I'm also excited about the Free Thought Caucus because... Congress has not always respected the separation of state and church. Um, You know, they've often flouted that principle, but now there is this group, a group that you two helped found in Congress that is dedicated to upholding this vital principle that I've dedicated my career to and that FFRF exists to defend. Um, You know, the Freedom From Religion Foundation is really excited, and we hope to be both a resource and an ally in your struggle.
0: Terrific. Well, I want to thank both of you for a really enlightening and interesting conversation, uh, and we'll have you back on the podcast some other time. But thanks for joining me. It was my pleasure. We're going to close out this podcast with a, a segment that I like to do from time to time involving our wonderful college interns. Uh, we have so many talented young people that come through and spend a few weeks or a few months interning in my uh, Washington office and we don't thank them enough but one way I can thank them is to give them a couple minutes of fame on my podcast so you're going to get to meet four uh, very bright young people uh, who will each have uh, a moment to introduce themselves and either ask uh, me a question or say something that has uh, inspired them during their internship take it away guys Hi, my name is Grace McKamey Miller. I am a constituent of Congressman Huffman's, and here for the summer in DC. Very excited to be here, and very honored to be on the podcast. And where do you right go to school? Now. I am a current student at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Um, I want to ask you a quick question re- regarding kind of how we, as young people, as as citizens of the United States, go about transcending. Religion, but also the divisive conversation and dialogue that has taken over our or feels at times that at times it's taken over um, our democracy and political sphere. What are your best tactics? What are your what's your best advice for starting conversation between people who may be of different mindsets, of different backgrounds and of different religious? Yeah, um, great question. Timely. Uh, It does seem uh, like things are particularly divided and toxic. Our president is not helping the situation. I think we all know that. Uh, He seems to seize every opportunity to just pit us against each other, uh, whether it's the the NFL anthem uh, pseudo uh, problem that he continues to stoke or any other part of the culture wars. So I I think it's really about just connecting with people and having honest civil conversations heard from so many of my colleagues that um, when they actually sit down with constituents, even with constituents of different parties and different political views and can have uh, a person to person dialogue, uh, it's just so different than the the yelling and screaming and fighting you get on on cable news every night. The other piece of it is, uh, I think, get your information from sources that are a little less shrill. Uh, So I, I like to encourage people to consult NPR, uh, which is a different business model instead of, uh, you know, a business plan that requires people to stay in a high level of fear and agitation so they won't turn the dial. NPR is supported by listeners, you know, that it's not the advertiser-driven competitive fight that that the cable news networks are in against each other. So, a couple of thoughts. Uh, I, I have a lot of faith in your generation to get this right, though, and, and I'm inspired by the way I see young people engaging these days. So... Um, please uh, do what you can. Thank
2: Who's you. Who's next?
0: Um, hi, I'm Natalie Dybeck. I'm also a constituent from Novato, and I go to school at UCLA. I've been interning here for about three months now, and it has been such an honor getting to work with for you and with the office and also just such a rewarding experience getting to work on legislation and walk through the halls that history is made in. Mm, thanks. Um, the question I have for you is what piece of legislation in this Congress are you most proud of and why? in this congress oh my uh the problem natalie is this congress hasn't done much <laughs> this is a historically unproductive congress so uh i feel really proud of a few of the big bills that we have been part of introducing uh they're not necessarily going anywhere in this congress but uh you know i have a, i have a bunch of clean energy and, and climate bills uh, uh one that would uh, phase out all fossil fuel development on public lands and off of the outer continental shelf. Uh, it's called the Leave it in the Ground uh, or Keep it in the Ground Act. We've got to do something like that if we're going to get this right on climate change. Uh, I'm proud of the the fact that in, in difficult politics, we're still able to pull a bipartisan bill to increase special education funding together. And we keep trying that every single year. And one of these years, we'll we'll get something like that passed. But Honestly, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to look at this Congress and find anything that's all that inspiring or, or, or really a landmark bill on any major issue, except for the ones that are taking us in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. and those are bad landmarks. <laughs> but thanks, and uh, stick around for a possible uh, new majority, and, and then we'll be passing lots of different and, I think, more uh, uplifting uh, legislation in the months ahead.
1: Uh, hi, Congressman. Uh, my name is Joe Ginolio. I am a student of Politics and Environmental Studies at UC Santa Cruz in California. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here at Congress the past couple months. It's been an incredible experience. Um, my question was, um, obviously, in your time at Congress, there was a time when you were not an openly non-religious humanist. Right. And I, I was wondering if you could talk maybe about how you viewed and still view your Identity and your beliefs in a body of predominantly religious people, and what um, what your thought process led to you not only coming out with your beliefs but also forming
2: this new caucus
0: yeah, thanks, thanks for that question Joe probably a longer answer than we have time to give because these questions about you know religion and everybody 's personal religious Perspective and journey. You know, this is pretty deep stuff, and it it's hard to to dial that into a fifteen or thirty second answer. Uh, but the bottom line for me is that I've I consider myself, believe it or not, a, a spiritual person. I'm really open to all sorts of possibilities uh, in the universe, uh, but I haven't found any organized religion that really works for me. And uh, You'd be surprised at how often as a member of Congress you get asked, what is your religion? What is your religion? They want you to put it on questionnaires. They want to put it in your your little profiles and, and biographies you know, all over the place. And uh, like most members of Congress who have that perspective, um, I didn't really have a very good answer. I think I said none uh, in response uh, the first few years or, or uh, declined to state or something like that. And I have a whole bunch of colleagues that have similarly ducked the question, basically. Uh, And I just got tired of of dodging, Uh, not because I think there should be religious tests in government. There's obviously the Constitution says there can't be a religious test. But I think it's fair for people to want to know, you know, what is your moral framework? What what makes you tick? Uh, Because I'm their representative. And so uh, I felt that by identifying as a secular humanist, uh, I'm at least giving people an idea of where my personal code of morality comes from you know humanists believe that there can be good without god that we have obligations to each other and that we should support science a lot of the things that we were talking about on the podcast today uh there are a lot of really good people uh who just don't happen to be religious and and i think it's important that at least one member of congress is okay just being honest and transparent uh, about that so that's kind of what led me to to publicly go there thank you yeah. all right and clean up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, um, my name is Sierra Stevens and um, I'm a junior at uh, University of Michigan studying public policy, also a constituent of Jared Hoffman's from Fairfax, California. And um, I mean, thank you so much for having me here. This has been an amazing internship and I'm really excited to have a few more months here. Um, However, I know this is pretty timely as we've had the California primaries recently. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it that made you realize that you wanted to run for office because I know that we see a lot of people out there making that step a lot of women specifically
0: yeah
2: Um. so what was it that lit your fire
0: yeah and, and uh, I will offer this as a suggestion for anybody out there and including any of you uh, who are thinking about politics and maybe running for office I wasn't really sure I wanted to run for office Although I was always interested in politics, and so what I did was I just followed issues that I really cared about. And so the the short answer to your question, what actually made you run for office, uh, is a book called Cadillac Desert, and it's the issue of water. Uh, I read this book. It's the seminal book of uh, Western water and kind of the the development, really, of the Western United States and how water policy played into it. Uh, And I'm pretty passionate about fisheries and the environment. Uh, and uh, after reading that book I was really looking for a chance to translate my interest and passion in these issues into policy making and uh, I had a chance to run for my local water board in 1994 a long time ago uh, and that's how it all got started really just um, a, a light bulb went off uh, on an issue that I really cared about and that's my advice to anybody that's interested in politics don't just be political. You know, we we have no shortage of politicians who just want to climb the political ladder, uh, care about something, work on something, get really good at something and see where that takes you. If it takes you into politics, I think you're going to be a more authentic and successful politician than if you're just a political climber. All right. Thanks for great questions. Thanks for being interns. And to my podcast listeners, we'll see you next time. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.